You can take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. As we finish up this morning, really one whole section over which we've had, this will be the third sermon in it. And so we'll have to be mindful of even that context going all the way back to verses 1 through 15 from a couple weeks ago with that miracle of the disabled man, invalid, who is unable for 38 years, it would seem, to walk, to care for himself, who Jesus healed. I think all of that in the greater context of really rejection here uh, is very insightful for how Jesus is interacting and responding to the questions and, um, and really to the persecution. Let's go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin and dive in together. Lord, we do thank you for the time again to come together, to sing songs, to lift our voices of your great faithfulness to us. And Lord, even as we saw last week, that is rooted in yourself. It's rooted in you and your character, not in our performance, but in who you are and what Christ has done for us. And therefore, we can have absolute confidence in our salvation because of those things. Encourage us this morning as we are reminded of all the testimonies of the deity of Christ, as well as that it demands a response. And our prayer is that uh, those here who do not know you, it would not be a response such as we see here of unwillingness, but that you, by the power of your spirit, would draw each one willingly out of love for your son to complete belief and trust in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Every generation, there are important dates. Dates that doesn't matter if you're from Nebraska or Florida or Montana or California, you know those dates. One of those dates would be in American history, December 7th, 1941. You think of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And there's a generation, Grant, a little before my generation, uh, where that would be a date, as the president said at the time, that would live in infamy. You know that date, you know that time. Maybe a generation later, more my parents' generation, you're going to know July 20th, 1969. And you're going to know exactly where you were when... They landed on the moon. You know that date. You know where you were. You probably, what living room, what television you were watching as most of the world was watching. For my generation, and for most of us alive today, you can remember back to September 11th, 2001. And I can tell you with vivid detail where I was in school, if that dates me a little bit, uh, in school when that happened and the teacher bringing in the teacher and watching the news that day. And each one of those events... That generation becomes a witness. That is, they have seen, they have experienced together this event that has happened. And you can try to deny it, but everyone will uniformly say, you can't deny what happened on 2001. You can't deny what happened in 1969. You can't deny what happened in 1941 in the sense that we all witnessed, we all saw it. And so as you come to John chapter 5, and you're going to see this emphasis, which is pretty consistent in John on witness, testimony, because of course it's all pushing to belief in Jesus as the Son of God. 
Even as we saw in the waters of baptism, people giving witness of their personal encounter, experience with Christ, how they came to a saving faith. They become in that long line of those who've witnessed who Christ is. And Jesus is going to himself give some witnesses, as we're going to see this morning. But what I find most interesting about this is in what way, especially as we think towards the end of this sermon on the scriptures, in what way do they share witness? Because of course, how does a text bear witness? I think it all goes back to the character of God. That God was in the beginning, chapter one. Jesus was with God. Jesus is in the beginning because he is God. And his testimony is going to be unique in that way and absolutely trustworthy. Because just like in Hebrews 6 that we looked at last week, when he made the promise, the covenant with Abraham, he could swear by no one greater than himself. So he swore by himself. Because the one thing about that witness is, is it absolute? Well, no, because even if it's widespread generational, generation next, two generations down the road, you're still going to have questions. Yeah, maybe we have a little more evidence in that we maybe sometimes can have technology that gives evidence beyond writing and video and audio and all of those things, but it's still human witness. And there's something far greater than human witness that is demonstrated here. I'm thankful. We saw some of that even a few weeks ago with uh, thinking of text criticism of our own scriptures, where is, you know, chapter four, that addition there, and you have the brackets. I'm thankful for God's providence, and we have so much witness externally so we can trust the scriptures. I'm thankful that here he's going to even give a witness of John the Baptist. He's going to remind us, and he really gave John the Baptist in chapter one already as a witness, and Jesus is going to remind us of that witness. But there's something far greater and far more reliable, and that's Jesus' own witness and really his witness as united to the Father. Last Sunday, we saw a clear case for the authority and the deity of Christ. Go back to verse 17 through 20, that Jesus, the Son, can do nothing, he says, apart from the Father. And this is going to include testifying, because it's not going to be him alone. He can't do that. Why? Because he doesn't do anything apart from what the Father wills. Remember, he's in trouble for what? He's being persecuted for why? Because my father is working until now. He says, and I myself am working, and they connect the dots that Jesus is saying more than I'm a prophet. They say, for this reason, verse 18, the Jews were seeking, and remember this is Jewish leadership particularly, are seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That's so important for us because even though we're kind of ahead of here into verse 30, everything hinges on why are we talking about the subject of Jesus and the equality with the Father? It's because of verse 18. Jesus is giving an answer to why this is true. And of course, that's all hinging on the miracle that kind of brings this up where he heals the disabled man for 38 years, says, pick up your mat and carry it and walk It goes back to that story that kicks off this whole discussion. And I even think, because we're in this larger section of rejection, just like it's difficult not to read the man's response. After 38 years, where he then goes and once he finds out it was Jesus who healed him, he goes and he tells them, in essence, tattles on Jesus. It's hard not to view him with 
kind of suspicion. And even as we end here, you're going to see the response isn't what you'd like to see. It's not what we saw in chapter 4, where in Samaria they come out and they believe. No, that's one of unbelief. But Jesus is still going to give his answer. He's still going to continue this discussion of equality with God. The reminder that God has given him judgment, verse 23. Why? Because Jesus the Son is going to be honored. He's going to be glorified. And one of those ways is the Father giving him judgment. Verse 24. He who hears my word believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And so Jesus has that power as demonstrated in verse 25 down through verse 30, which is kind of a transition of the power to give life and the power to, in essence, give death or, in this case, judgment, as described in the scriptures over and over again as eternal judgment, punishment, just as it is in correspondence with eternal life. It only comes through the Son. He alone is going to grant life. So you got to go through him. And this morning, we're going to explore five powerful witnesses of Jesus and see, towards the end, a wrong response to those powerful witnesses in John Chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. We kind of started into 30 last time. It's, it's a transition here where Jesus is kind of almost summarizing what's come and pushing forward to say, remember, I can do nothing for myself. And as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I think that transition is important for what comes next because he says, verse 31, if alone I bear witness, if alone if I alone bear witness about myself, my witness is not true. And what we see clearly here as the first powerful witness is that of Jesus himself. But you're even going to note as we see this first powerful witness, Jesus is going to say, it's not alone. And you're going to say, I think, to me at least, reading it, well, we already established in chapter 1, he is God. He was in the beginning, according to to the scriptures, according to John's gospel. He is God, which is the whole point of this gospel to demonstrate that. How is his witness insufficient? Well, there's a partial kind of reality here where Jesus, I think, does want them to believe. And so you could say, Deuteronomy 19.15. There's a weakness in a single witness. Deuteronomy 19 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. So there might be a way in which he is establishing something here. But he's demonstrating that it's more than myself. I alone. I think there's truth in that. I just also think, as you think about what he's saying in the depth of equality with the Father, it's probably even more than that. He's saying, I alone don't bear witness because it's not just me. There's, again, this Trinitarian relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's going to lean on the Father's testimony here, not only of the Father's ability of saying, I lean on my Father through the Spirit for the power of demonstrating these sign miracles, but also through the Scriptures themselves. And so you're going to see multiple witnesses, so they can't really say, well, there's only one. We need more than one. Well, you have more than one. He's even going to give a human one in John the Baptist. But there is a reality. Jesus does give his own testimony. You're not going to be able to say Jesus didn't say he was God, as some try to do. It's, it's clear his own witness. 
This term witness is used 47 different times. It's used quite a few. If you were to start to underline in this section, witness, 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 we'll see it over and over and over. It's this self-witness that Jesus gives of his deity at this moment, along with these other witnesses, the quality of God. And he does so in many places throughout, even if we just establish it in the gospel of John. And here's some of them. Because every time Jesus is going to use the phrase, I am, every person who knows the Pentateuch, that knows the Old Testament, our Old Testament, knows what I am is referring to. And so when Jesus says these five statements here, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, he's making a statement of deity. Why was he before Abraham? How could he be before Abraham if he's alive later than Abraham? It's because he is God and he has always existed. John 6, we're going to see in the coming weeks, he says, I am the bread of life. And again, it's that important, I am. And he goes on, John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And every time they hear I am, Jesus is saying, and we might think it's subtle, and there's some subtlety to it, but they, just like they understood here back in chapter 5, when he says my father's works on it, and I myself am working, they get what he's saying when he says I am. And what he's saying is, you go back to the name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, I am. That's who Moses was to tell Pharaoh, who sent you, I am. You also see beyond that, these I am sayings, there's just explicit places where there's this identity. We've already seen a few here of equality with God, but say John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Like I said, we go back to John 1, we see it there. Even John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And it's that unity that he's establishing here as a witness for who he is and ultimately why you should believe and you should come to him. And yet, despite these witnesses, we're going to see they, at this moment in time, are not going to do so. But you see that oneness and that Jesus stands as a testimony to himself. But the major emphasis here is that he doesn't stand alone. And so it's 31, if I alone bear witness. So we're going to see, okay, so it's not you alone because you are always united because you and the Father are one. And there's going to be multiple witnesses laid out. And he's emphasizing the unity of him and the Father, that they are one. And so it's no surprise that if you get into verse 32, you're going to see he's going to lean on the Father. Verse 32, there is another. And so there's a witness of Jesus. And who's the other? The witness, number two, of the Father. There's a witness of another who bears witness about me. And I know that the witness which he gives about me is true. So it's interesting, you see that kind of the way it works. My witness is not true if it's alone, but of course, what makes it true? It's because he and the Father are one, and the Father's witness about him makes it true, because he is one with the Father. And yes, there could be a reference here. Where is the Father witnessed? It's not necessarily recorded in the Gospel of John, but you could look at Matthew, and you can see the Father says at his baptism, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But even here, I think, is that point of unity and probably going to 37 and 38 where it's expounded a little bit. And you can even drop down there for, for this point that it's demonstrated in his power, in his miracles. If you look at verse 37, he says it that way, the father who sent me, he has borne witness about me. How? Well, you neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, which is an interesting statement 
to them because they're saying, well, we are God's people. We have his scriptures, but they're saying, yeah, I know, but you're not like me. This goes back to John chapter three. You are not from above. You need someone from above and Jesus is the one from above. Yes, they are God's people, but they're still people. They're still earthly and they need someone from above. You've neither heard his voice nor seen his form and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who sent me. We're going to see that verse 36, the very works, we'll make that kind of its own point, point to the deity and the equality of the father with the son. It's a lasting impact. The father who sent the son has given testimony here, verse 32, of the son. God has spoken. We see in the scripture many different ways. Think of Hebrews chapter one, the very beginning of Hebrews. He's spoken at many times in various ways through the prophets of old. But all of them are pointing to the son who Hebrews one says in the last days, which is in time from Christ's ascension till now, he speaks through his son, the word incarnate. And even think back to 118. Remember how we talked about, um, actually go there because I think it's so important here that they haven't seen or heard the Father. But in 118, what does it say? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. But how do you see him? How do you know him? It's Jesus. It's he who has explained, or, and we use that word, uh, you could translate it, narrates, explains, narrates the Father. How do you know the Father? You know the Father by knowing the Son. And this is why I think it's going to be kind of a powerful understanding of even understanding Jesus and how he's expressed in the Old Testament. Because if you're going to see, if you see the Father, you see the Son. That is his major point. They didn't hear a voice from heaven. And they must trust the one who has come from heaven. The Father will testify in other ways, as through works we'll see here in a moment. But first we're going to see, he's going to give a reminder that you even had a human witness and you didn't believe him. And thirdly, in verse 33, it mentions the witness of John the Baptist. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And that was his purpose going back to chapter 1, right? He points to the one, he's not worthy of tying his sandals. But the witness of John, the witness I receive, is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. It's really a beautiful condescension. Think about that phrase that, listen, I don't need John the Baptist to witness to me. I don't need any human being. I don't get any glory, as he explains later, from men. I don't need you to say, oh, you're God. I don't need you to, to worship me. See, I don't need that. But he wants you to know there's some evidence out there. Now, is it perfect? No human evidence is. There's going to be faith and faith in things that you have not seen. Absolutely, for you to truly understand and believe Christ, you're going to have to have faith. Trust and hope for things that are not yet seen, but he wants them to be saved. And so therefore he says, remember, there was a man named John. I don't need his testimony, but let me say, you've heard it, you've seen him, you knew him. But what did they do to John? And it's interesting here, because 35, where it's, it's, it's hard to figure out timing here, and it could be that John has already been murdered and is already gone. Because he says he was, past tense, verse 35. It could be past tense in just that 
he's off the scene and the Messiah has come and Jesus' ministry has started. But either way, this is a reminder here. He was a lamp. He was a light that was burning and shining and you were willing to rejoice. But only for a while, it says, in his light. They recognized the power of John. They actually didn't kill John, right? It's going to be Herod who does that. But here is the reminder of his witness. I just love that John, or Jesus, mentions his John's witness, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his hearers, who, by the way, he knows the hearts of men, and he knows they're going to reject him, but he still wants them to know, and maybe even the disciples to hear, and for them to remember post-cross of what he has demonstrated and what he has said. Even in that plea, there was a response to John early, the Baptist, that was appropriate and right. That they could remember that. But the sad truth is they only rejoice in it for a little while, and afterwards they go. And it's very similar to what we're going to see in John 6, another unbelievable miracle of Jesus feeding thousands upon thousands of people. And what's going to be true of them is John six twenty six that truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says to his disciples, you, or says to these crowds, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Only for a little while, while you did for your own purposes, your own reasons, did you follow, did you listen to John? And the same is going to be true of Jesus. You only did this because you saw these things, not because you believed, not because you loved him. But yet John still stands as a witness and really almost a subset of the father we're going to see because the father gives him the works is the way it's phrased here in 36, stands as another testimony to the deity of Christ. You could argue the same witness as the father because Jesus does nothing of himself, right? That's repeated multiple times. Verse 30, I can do nothing from myself. And then verse 36, even his signs he's doing dependent on power of the Spirit, of the works that the Father has given. It says, 36, the witness I have is greater than the witness of John. Well, of course it is, right? For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, those works, they bear witness about me. He is born witness about, or born witness of me that the Father has sent me. He's saying, these things you see me doing whether it is from the, the wedding at Cana or just him healing. We haven't, he hasn't recorded all of the miracles. We know there's many, especially in Galilee, that are, are going. You've been a witness to these things. They all witness one thing, that the Father sent me. It, even Nicodemus, go back to John chapter 3, has to admit that the Lord's miracles identified him as, you must be sent from God. Nicodemus doesn't quite know who he is at that point, other than you're a teacher, you're a prophet, you're a rabbi. But he knows you are something different. You are sent from God. Once you understand the Father, the Son, the relationship, it's grass. Everything Jesus does is going to attest to who he is and who the Father is. Sometimes you see the, the Gospel of John marked out in major miracles. Uh, some debate, some people, you know, seven, the perfect number, that they'll stick with seven. Uh, you think of the, the water and the wine and uh, putting water into wine in John chapter 2. Healing of the official's son here. Healing of the disabled man at Bethsaida. The feeding of the 5,000. The walking on the water. The healing of the blind man. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. Kind of the major ones. Although that's where the argument comes in. What do you do with 
Jesus, like his own resurrection. That seems to be probably the biggest miracle of all. But it's just simply to say, throughout this book, there's these major signs all pointing to Jesus isn't just a man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's sent from heaven, sent from the Father. Each of the miracles, they're going to serve a very specific purpose. They're going to highlight different things about who Christ is, his identity, and his mission, and reinforce this central theme that John gives, that I've written all of this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so really, the whole book ends up being its own witness of this truth, that Jesus is sent from the Father. Why? Because of the works that are testimonies themselves, witnesses, the works themselves are witnesses of who Jesus is and his very mission. And then lastly, not least, but last, the witness of the scriptures, verse 39. You got to remember, again, he's talking to Jews, but again, this is the leadership. These are people who know well. It's probably some that are part of the Sanhedrin that are plotting to kill him. They are ones who would pride themselves and their knowledge of the scriptures. And he says, you search. Talking, this is all the PhDs in the room. Talking to somebody who's the top in their field. And saying, you missed it. And they're thinking, uh, if we missed it, then everyone's missed it because we're the best at what we do. And he says, you who should know the scriptures the best, you search, verse 39, the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He uses, really, if you drop down to 45, where for all this time he's being accused of things, right? And he kind of goes on the offensive here. says, you search scriptures for eternal life, which this is a very powerful statement because you think there's eternal life by obeying the law is really the implication here. Just, and he's saying, no, it's not about obedience to the law. Not that obedience is bad. It's just you miss the whole point of the Old Testament pointing to Messiah, pointing to faith in Yahweh. You missed it. And he goes on the attack in 45 and says, do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. They put their hope in Moses and what he kind of gets after there isn't just the whole of the scriptures probably is but an exact emphasis on Moses representing the law in whom you have set your hope they put their hope on obedience on external works not on faith not on trust and that's not where eternal life is found where is eternal life found we saw already Jesus says I'm the only one who is able to give life so Moses is going to accuse you because uh, he didn't say that is basically what he's saying. You think he said salvation is through obedience to the law and you missed it. And that's a whole nother lengthy sermon to think of how do you understand the Old Testament? Because we tend to sometimes go, well, there's all these rules and obedience to rules must equal salvation. No, it wasn't a different way of getting saved in the old as it is the new. You look at Hebrews, you look at Hebrews chapter 11. What about Abraham? It's by faith. What about Jacob? It's by faith. Even in the Old Testament, it is by faith. They misunderstood and Moses is going to say, you misread me. In fact, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you understood Moses and you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. 
But if you do not believe in his writings, his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is making this radical statement of this powerful statement that the scriptures are a powerful witness of the deity of Christ. Like I said, just as we looked at kind of the I am statements, the witness of the Father throughout the Gospel of John, I think it's helpful here and instructive to look and say, where else does he say these things? How does he demonstrate the witness of Scripture in the Gospel of John? It's kind of just a brief like, overview, thinking of what we've gone through and thinking of what is ahead of us as we study. But John chapter 2, where he's turning wine or water into wine, and he drives out the money changers, uh, chapter 2 there. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, and says, his, temp- his disciples remembered what? That it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered. Oh, there's one who will have zeal for my house? And it connects that scripture with the person of the Messiah, which they connect with Jesus in his driving out the money changers in John chapter 2, verse 17. And John chapter 6, which we're coming up on, Jesus is going to remind you to talk a lot about providing bread and that they're not going to even believe despite the miraculous miracle. He reminds them that their fathers had eaten manna in the wilderness and then applied it to himself and said, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Saying, remember that manna that I provided for you in the Old Testament? It was pointing to me. I am the bread of life. He explains later in John chapter 6 that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him and then explains in Isaiah 54. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father says, comes to me. Say the prophets are going to point to the Messiah. John 7, Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to living water that will flow out of those who believe on him. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's a reference to Old Testament phrase of life-giving. Think of a place like Isaiah 58, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36. Sorry, I saw some references to that in John chapter 4. You have something very direct like a Mac, uh, Micah 5, 2. And John 7, we're just saying there's, we're going to be there. They're going to accuse Jesus of, well, the Messiah comes from Bethlehem and you come from Nazareth. Well, actually, no, he doesn't. He, he comes from Bethlehem. That's just, again, a point of saying there is a direct prophecy. He will be born in Bethlehem. I mean, that's true of Jesus. The scripture testifies he must come from Bethlehem and Jesus is from Bethlehem. Jesus says, John 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. After referring to Psalm 82, verse 6, referencing again, it's talking about me. It's all pointing to me. So it's not strange at all that when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Saying it's all will be fulfilled. Not one thing will not be fulfilled. It all points to me. 
in John 12, where Isaiah 6 is quoted, and we sung just even a few weeks ago, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in 1241 of John, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And he's going to connect and saying, you saw the glory of the Father, and that is the same to say you see the glory of Christ. One commentator said it this way, I think it was really helpful. He said, quote, nothing more sweeping could be said about the way the Old Testament witnesses to Jesus. In essence, John is saying where God is manifest in the Old Testament, Jesus is manifest. If you see God at work, you see Jesus at work. That was really helpful to me because another commentator put it this way, which is probably how I would traditionally think when, which I think this is true as well, that by predictive prophecy, you think of how the New Testament uses the Old. Uh, there's, there's prophecy in the Old Testament about Christ. There's type, uh, revelatory events, anticipatory statutes that we call the Old Testament are understood to all point to Christ, his ministry, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. But I don't know if I've ever quite thought of here where you see this, Jesus is making the argument that he and the Father are one, and to say, when you see the Father, you see him. Which is to say, then, the witness of Scripture, everything points to him. And really, more than anything, what he's trying to draw out is if you knew the Father, if you loved the Father, you would know Jesus and you would love him. You would recognize the Son if you knew the Father. In other words, if you rightly understood the Old Testament, you would understand this is Messiah. But yet you see him, them here, verse back to 39. What's their response? They thought if they had head knowledge, they knew things, or they were externally obedient. They thought that was eternal life. You search the scriptures because they have a, a good goal. They have a good motivation. I think most of us would have that here. They want to know, how do you have eternal life? It's just they came to the wrong answer. They thought it was about what they did instead of, rather, who God is and what Christ has done. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just intellectual. It's not simply you can just study the scriptures and have no love for Christ. That's not going to work. There's a relational element that has to be here because as the Father and the Son are one, as we saw in John 15, it is that you come to Christ. You are united with Christ. You are the branches united to the vine. And in a similar way, then we are not able to do anything apart from Christ. Their wrong responses, which is going to be really, I think, valuable for us as well here, verse 40, because we're going to get into John chapter 6, and not early, but towards the late, you're going to see a lot of God's sovereignty. You're not going to be able to go to God unless the Father draws you. Very similarly, you see it in John 3 as well. Regeneration isn't something we can do. It's something that has to, God has to give to us, grant to us. And you might be one to say, well then, how can God say we're guilty? Well, there's still human responsibility and, and what's going to condemn them here and what's going to condemn anyone is their unbelief, their unwillingness. Because look at verse 40. The issue here is, isn't that they don't know something? It, it's not a head issue. You could say it's, it's a heart issue. It's their unwillingness in verse 40 to come to me so that you may have life. Even after, what's Jesus' desire? Verse 34. I say these things so that you may be saved. I think he's given clear testimony. You think of all the miraculous things they've witnessed and interacted with Jesus, and yet they're unwilling. That's the issue here. It's 
Not a head issue. This is a heart issue of an unwillingness to come to him and that they might receive life. And you go, well, how? Why would you do that? If Jesus is going to give you life, go to him. But you're going to see they value some things. Just like the disabled man who I think valued those of the Sanhedrin who wanted to persecute Jesus, their opinion more than Jesus' opinion when he goes and he tells them. And so Jesus therefore then ratted out. They care more about receiving glory from men than glory from God. That's the issue here. And so the wrong response is one, unwillingness, but then two, it's going to be the fear of man. They'd rather be wrong and rejected by God than spend an eternity being submissive to him. They're responsible for that. But also another major reason is they're willing to come as they fear man more than they fear God. Jesus doesn't need, verse 34, I don't receive it, testimony, witness from man. I don't need that. But they sure want that. They go on. Jesus says, I don't receive any glory from men, verse 41, but verse 42, but I know you. He knows them. He knows the hearts of men. He knows us. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves, which is demonstrated how? Because they don't want to be obedient to him above looking good to an outside world. You don't have the love of God in yourselves. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In other words, rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the Father. And the union, the oneness. How can you, verse 40, believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God? It's his way of making this massive argument to say, you think this is about head knowledge or searching the scripture for, did he check all the boxes? And this is, you guys need, John chapter three, new hearts. You need to be regenerated. You have a love for what others think more than a love for God and you're never going to be able to come to him, come to Christ, that remains true. Even the love for God is going to be expressed, not just even in, in obedience, but really, 1 John goes into this, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 5. It's not just obedience. Of course, love does obey, but it's the chief command, which is belief in the Son. So there's unwillingness, there's fear of man, but then, of course, we don't want to probably leave here without exploring, which isn't here because it's still, they reject. But there is a right response. Humble willingness. And so if it's wrong to be unwilling, it's right and good and godly to be willing. And that, think of James chapter four, verse seven. Be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. All leads to, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That takes humility, willingness to say, he is God, I am not. I have nothing of my own worth that is valuable to him. And that's why the only door to go to Christ is one that is marked with humility. But humility is going to come with a sincere love for Christ as well. That it isn't just head knowledge. And there's an interesting verse as Paul ends 1 Corinthians 16. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, 
he is to be accursed, which is Paul's language, to be damned, to be uh, sent to hell, to be accursed. And there's a temptation for all of us that why no head knowledge, and you hear it here in the testimony of baptism as well with different people where they go, I, I knew the truth, but I had no desire. I had no love for Christ. I didn't have a new heart. And true belief is marked by this humble willingness to say, I'm a sinner who needs a savior and by a love for Christ for who he is and what he's done. I'm not just talking about uh, infatuation, feelings. I don't have this, you know, some of us are a little more emotional than the next person. I'm not talking about that, but a, a true deep affection and love for Christ because you have come to know him. Again, this relational element, you know him. That's the right response, to be humble and to love him. Well, as you think about these witnesses, do you have that witness? Do you, have you seen him in that sense? We didn't see these things, but we have witnesses that did. We have witnessed even this morning in the individuals of their testimony of Christ. Do you believe their witness? Do you believe the testimony of the scriptures? Ultimately, this is the issue. What are you gonna do with Christ? It demands a response of who he is. And it's not just a head nod. Yep, that's true. There is a God. He had a son. He came to earth. He died for sin. No, there's, there, there's a relational element of do you know him? Have you come to him? Have you repented of your sin? And do you love him? My prayer is that would be true in your life as you live it out as well as then if that is the thing you love, that is the thing you're most excited about, most passionate about, then you have to tell others as well that it overflows because you want to say he has changed my life and you have to tell others about that person who has changed you. Let's pray. Father, we do see your love for us all over, salted through the pages of Scripture, even here, the love of Christ for those who are clearly destined to reject him. And yet he says things, even like John's witness, as a way to say, I say this for, not because I need to, but not for your sake, that you may be saved. The heart of Christ, Lord, even as we think of other places of, we've studied thinking of Matthew and thinking that he doesn't come as one to give heavy burdens, but his burden is light. He is gentle. Uh, he is lowly, as it were. Lord, help us see that and help us be, by the power of your spirit, attracted to that with deep affection for what Christ has done for us. And may that overfill as we desire, Lord, and even as we recognize this oneness, this union with Christ and the Father is a picture of our union in the sense of just as the Son can do nothing of himself, so as we see, we are to do nothing apart from Christ. So encourage us in that this morning. Keep us mindful of that as we live. Lord, we are always tempted to do things out of our own power. May this be a reminder that even Christ did not do so in his incarnation. And we as believers should live not on our own power, but in the power of your spirit as we lean on Christ. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.